Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the discovery of a bunch of dead archbishops in London. Peter, lead us in. Yeah, so in April this year, uh, there was an interesting story uh, about about the uh, Church of St. Mary at Lambeth in, in London. Uh, and during some maintenance works, uh, the, 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 the workers discovered uh, a, a crypt um, under the church, which had been uh, completely forgotten. Uh, and uh, inside the crypt were some fairly uh, notable burials. They were, I think they were five archbishops now uh, archbishops are uh, obviously quite sort of notable figures in in the church uh and uh of them there was a richard bancroft who chaired the committee that wrote the king james bible so you know quite notable uh and uh, jo- jo- uh john moore and his wife and just just for the avoidance of doubt these these were they were all dead they were all dead right and they had been dead for some time and then it turns so this the, the, this crypt um had had been in use for about two to three hundred years for the for burial of significant uh, members of the church and yet uh, only sort of 200 years ago uh, had been completely forgotten about in that 200 years it sort of fallen out of use fallen out of record and no one knew it was there until it was rediscovered now this and this sort of this got me thinking it's like well um isn't it fascinating that something that was so important put you know important people buried there uh, obviously a lot of fuss made about them when they were alive and during dur- during their uh, internment what what how is it that such an imp- one thing something that was so important at one time can then be forgotten about to be then rediscovered yeah it reminds me of the the honors of scotland i don't know if you know about that they were also lost for for some i think centuries uh, and were unearthed by sir walter scott um, curiously in the 19th century, you know, who basically followed a kind of trail of evidence about where they were. These were basically the Scottish crown jewels. Mm. And I think they found them in in a locked box in a storeroom somewhere in Edinburgh Castle. Um, but but the same thing, these are crown jewels we're talking about. And mm. they flipping lost them. I mean, it's really <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. You know, um, but it is, it's very, uh, seems to be a very, very common sort of phenomenon, this, you know lost thingies like those um the faberge eggs you know which uh, uh, uh occasionally very occasionally someone you know mm. a, a collect, someone will discover that a faberge egg at a um you know at a, at a car boot sale and i mean these are the most valuable almost the most valuable ju- pieces of jewelry ever made uh you know worth in some cases you know hundreds of millions of pounds um and and yet you know they were all dispersed and lost you yeah. know, during the Russian Revolution, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's not single simple things like eggs or people, uh, the burial sites of people. It's you know, there's rediscoveries of uh, of, of ancient civilizations. You know, whole civilizations have sort of disappeared from and been lost in memory, and they're only to be rediscovered by adventurers in the yeah. 1800s and 1900s, going to places in in Southeast Asia and South America, uh, and you know, there's entire civilizations we know very little about. Was just because there's no re- there's no record survived, and yet people from there probably you know, expect there wasn't any obvious natural disaster that wiped them all out overnight. They people would have migrated in and out of this this place, and yet nothing about 
very little about that cult. Yeah, the, apparently, I think the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, which was a very significant defeat by the uh, of the Romans by by um, the G- Germanic uh, tribes, um, was uh, I mean it was an absolutely it was sort of three legions or something which were completely uh, completely wiped out. So it's a very significant battle. It was the first sort of really major loss and prevented the Romans from ever sort of colonizing Germany. And no one knows where it is. No one knows where the battle happened. You know, which is really surprising. I think that people have made guesses and unearthed, you know, what could be uh, part, parts of the battle site. But uh, but lots so, of other yeah. details about that battle are well known. Yeah, just exactly not the location, yeah. which is which I just find quite surprising. But, um, so yeah, so uh, what, so this all got me kind of thinking. Um, so what various questions but like um how does this sort of forgetting process work i mean there's there's i think it's probably a, a complex combination of factors but how is it that things that are so significant to lots of people at one time within a very fairly small number of generations that are completely lost uh, I, I think this is a really serious problem actually for 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 society because um it really seems to limit our ability uh you know to um to accrue knowledge uh it, it what it, it you know I, and I i think i'm old enough now i'm 40 i'm old enough to see people to see mistakes that were made and corrected when i was a kid coming back you know and people thinking about them i mean um you know you something where people are talking for example people are talking about renationalizing the railways now i i uh i don't particularly i don't have a very strong view about that but people are people are seem to have forgotten that british rail when it was a nationalized industry um was a was a joke people people it was you know the numbers of people who are using the trains has gone up very significantly in the last few years the services are uh, undoubtedly much better um now it might be that that would have happened anyway under nationalization but people have forgot they've forgotten that okay well th- let's not assume that nationalized industries are all fabulous and efficient because you know i re- i remember when they weren't uh and i just i feel like you see this again and again it's like the rise of the far right across europe you think no you, we've tried the far right we had a go at that and it's not good why are people why are people falling for it again you know, it's so frustrating. So we condemned. So historians might as just well give up their jobs, right? Because that's one of the things. They, you know, history. The whole point of it is to not repeat our mistakes. Yeah. But, well. 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 Like, this is where I think that you know, there's, there may be hope in the modern world, uh, and I, I suspect one of the things that allows things to get forgotten is the the lack of written records. Mm. We now we live in a, a world where we we record so much stuff. And we're presented with a new challenge, which is how do we trawl through all this stuff to find what's relevant. But in a world where literacy is extremely prevalent compared to it was 50, 100 years ago, and we record all this stuff and it's, it's, all, on, it's all on either paper or magnetic tapes or whatever, how, can, this, can this phenomenon still happen? Or will it be replaced by the same outcome via a different mechanism because just there's so much different data there we can't we can't work out what's important yeah i mean could machu picchu happen again as it were today mm. a whole lost civilization and gets rediscovered hundreds of years later um it, it feels like no but then the problem becomes a different one which i think is what you're saying which is a processing problem maybe mm. where there's so much data banging around is is it can still get lost somehow i guess yeah um, so so we might we might cure i don't know we might cure 
some disease uh, and then uh, the disease is almost eliminated and then 100 years later it comes back again because of some sort of gene mutation or whatever uh, we may have to reinvent that that solution because we can't we've got no reliable mechanism of trawling through the petabytes of data to sort out the what the the key the key insights uh, from all the from all the noise um, so yeah I, I, I think it's a really interesting thing this this forgetting process um, uh, and so and another question really is are we what, what in things that are impo considered important today are we in danger of forgetting in 200 to thousand years um, and what what can we do to preserve those? Well, I have an I've got an actual example. So of, of this is being a very significant policy issue. Uh, it's the um, uh, the the what's it called the waste uh, the waste isolation pilot plant pilot plant in New Mexico, which has uh, is used to store radioactive waste, and it's going to be dangerous for ten thousand years. And so they have this challenge, uh, and they've been working on this for you know several decades well, that's fine there's no rush is there uh but they they have this challenge about how to how to make it safe for future generations um when you remove when you consider that 10,000 years ago you know we were still making cave paintings uh you know what um what can you do to to make sure that in 10 years 10,000 years time people will know to avoid that area i mean you certainly can't use you know written language you can't assume that that's going to um be the same uh you you know you can't assume that um any of the kind of pictography that we associate with danger is going to be the same uh you know you get you get cults worshipping um you know uh death for example and 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 skulls might be or something like that might be seen as uh you know as something good um so there, there's all it's a really interesting question um I don't know. Have you guys got? How would you? How would you do it? I can tell you what the what they're going with, but but um, what would be your first reaction? Well, I mean, you need some kind of uh, trigger, which will. Let's assume you can sort out the tech side of it for a moment. That a trigger which for ten thousand years will always be triggered. Okay, um, but Indiana the, Jones style. Uh, yes, big, a big rolling ball that squashes you if you try <laughs> yeah. to. Um, but um, I guess you're, what you're saying is something that will always be alarming, and and will alarm people. I don't know. I, my answer is, um, as is often the case in one of my favourite episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation. And this may or may not be relevant, but I want to talk about it anyway. Um, where this is, is a beautiful episode where. Um, the 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 crew of the starship enterprise um comes across some sort of beacon out in space and they investigate what it is and there's kind of a flash of blinding light and um, captain picard is um out like a light for the next 10 minutes and during those 10 minutes he's actually somehow he's had the probe sort of go into his brain or something um and he lives out an entire lifetime on this uh in this civilization which is actually slowly being destroyed by um a supernova ing sun um and the whole the reason why the civilization does it is because it's the only way they can think of preserving their civilization and, and, and the, sorry the um the, a memory of their civilization is preserved um and and sure enough so he he, he goes forward and he, yeah so through through him they've got that memory goes out there so that is my answer is a revolving orbital um <laughs> so it's, it's not the uh it's not the budget solution but yeah uh, why not Obviously, presumably they're going for they they're trying to develop some sort of pictorial language which which 
which uh, appeals to innate sense of danger and uh, yeah i think they're actually going sort of the next step up actually they're going with menacing looking uh sort of earthworks so great big you know jagged looking earthworks and um which you know appear to radiate radiate out from a central point um to, to you know to to sort of um, make you, un- make you, feel, make you feel uncomfortable feel, feel uncomfortable. and uh yeah um uh, i mean i think so landscaping so, yeah, essentially scary landscaping. I mean, like, personally, I think they should just hide it. I think the best best thing to do, if you ha- at least have control of it, is to is to um, is to sort of totally level it off and make it look like there was nothing ever there. Um, There's another solution, you know, but, but I yeah, bury it deep enough so it's yeah unlikely to be a threat. But here's here's a question: Is how much should we care about um, the people of ten thousand years from now? Okay. Because you can make an argument for the next generation and maybe the one after that. But you could say, well, look, let's just make it safe for the next thousand years. Who cares about, you know, the 9,000 years after that? And so... But why? I don't see why it's any... I mean, if you're going to care about... We might as well say, why should we care about people far away? Uh, we should only care about people who are nearby. Yeah, careful. We'll get the effective altruists on. Our yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, doesn't that, isn't that what happens? And isn't that what happens? Well, yeah, in but our is news? that good? I mean, should should we should we do that? You know, you know, hundred people killed in a plane crash yesterday. Two of them were British. It, it's it's that it's that same thing. So that question you pose, I mean, you know, but oh, we should also be caring about people far away. I mean, I think the answer is well, we don't, do we? Um, should we is the question you know it's hard to say i mean would we would we have preferred that ten thousand years ago people had uh taken some actions which would make our lives better off yes we would right so clearly you need to kind of think about the preferences of people in the future um but yes i mean i think the, there becomes a point where it just becomes too difficult you know to try and communicate with people in the future and perhaps you do just have to say, well, look, let's just hope that, you know, future people can fix that. You know, if we, let's make it safe for a thousand years and we'll we'll somehow leave instructions which say, listen, people of the year 3000, it's time for you to think about yeah. the next thousand. How years. much would it cost to employ somebody over that period? A janitor for 10,000 years. To pa- pass on the message from one janitor to the next. I guess unless you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the laying on of hands, the laying on of warnings. Yeah. Uh, and their their job, you know, even in distant times when. When, when the purpose of their job has been totally forgotten, they're still there out in the desert, you know, warning people. Um, there, there are actually, I mean, because there, there are, um, you know, uh, I mean, they, they, well, that's a real life example, but there are tsunami stones in Japan which serve a similar purpose, and they were built about a hundred years ago, and they and they bear the message um, uh, that uh, high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point. Uh, anyway, they're all just sort of um, sitting there in gradually being overgrown by forests while people are merrily building houses below that point you know so you so you kind of yeah, you're making, kind of making the stones to, to use them as, as yeah, foundation stones them. yeah so i mean you know there's the question of whether future generations will care uh will listen you know so i mean let, uh, let's let's flip this around because a lot of this is perception as well so for example um hey you know a bunch of archbishops very public figures they're really important aren't they right um we think but actually they can't be that important oh well, i mean richard the third buried in a yeah, pub in a car park they, he, he yeah. genuinely was significant i mean you can argue about the archbishops i mean but i'm just uh, wondering if there's a reverse of this where stuff that is not important that actually 
um, or not seemingly important actually becomes sort of you know looms large in 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 a, in a national or collective consciousness. Um, and I guess it's not quite the same thing. But I mean, I'm just thinking: am I right in thinking that the, the diaries of Samuel Pepys um, were just for hundreds of years? I think they were not um, discovered; they were not known. Um, and it, all it is, it's just some musings of some bloke writing stuff down. Well, hold on one second. Samuel Pepys was a, quite a significant civil servant. I mean, he, OK, he was, he was, but... he was a fairly senior. It's the equivalent. It'd be the equivalent of, you know, a government minister or something. OK, their but... Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. But, so this is... are, but the musings themselves are quite trivial. About yeah, they, exactly. They, they That's my point. The, he talks about how his how his how his indigestion is playing out. Yeah, and groping Which, his. I mean, servant. as a historical document, obviously, it's hugely interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is called this is a kind of social taphonomy. Um, you know, taphonomy is about the it's it's the understanding of what survives. So you know, you you may uh, form the incorrect impression looking at what things people find at burial sites that our ancestors primarily used metal objects, for example. But no, it's only because wood has mainly rotted away. Uh, you know, and and the the so things like uh, Pepys's diary, uh, it, it it isn't you know the case, for example, that he was the only person who kept a diary, or that his diary was remotely significant, and we have to bear that in mind. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it it is of some significance, but its primary primary significance is that it survived complete, and and documents quite an interesting period in in English history. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's this. I think that question of social sort of cultural taphonomy what things survive, what what kinds of behaviour and beliefs are likely to survive and which things will get forgotten. Um, and all the other Peeps diaries out there that, which, that we don't know of or that maybe exist now or not have just, have just gone. I think that's quite interesting as well. Um, okay, I'm slightly lost. Where do we go? What, what, what do we, where, do we, where do we go with this? Well, I, I, was, I, I had a quick look, right, for the frequencies of big conflicts. And um, they do seem, you do seem to get big wars every roughly 50 years so you had your your 30 years war which was an absolute you know the biggest most dev- one of the most devastating wars that has ever happened uh and then that lasted till about till about 1650 and then and then the war of the spanish succession 50 years after that 50 year, roughly 50 years after that you got the austrian succession and the seven years war and then again another 50 years later the napoleonic wars uh, you know, I wonder if I wonder if there, you know that there is some sort of we're doomed to repeat these sorts of mistakes simply because people the direct experience of being in a conflict and people going that wasn't very nice we mustn't do that again just fades and you, you know and then eventually it seems like a good idea. Well, I mean, I remember some of the criticisms levelled at uh, people like Tony Blair and one of his contemporaries at the time was um, uh, what was the name? Of it? it was Chirac. Okay, mm. uh, and Chirac was very much no. Let's not invoid, uh, Let's not invade uh, Iraq. And one of the sort of uh, you know a rank he used to pull on him was, well, look, you don't know what it's like to be in a war. Um, neither, neither did you, George Bush, Mister Draft Dodger. Um, whereas he had actually been in combat. I believe was he in Algeria. Or yeah, something? I think he uh. had been. And so, look, you know, you guys don't. You know, I mean, this is all hearsay, but. The point you're making, I'm trying to sort of agree with the point that you're mm. making, was that the two people, or even the one who said, no, let's definitely go and do this, had really little conception of, of, of what war was like. Having said that, though, if we think how close um, the Second World War was to the First World War, and famously the war, First World War, the war, the war to end all wars, and everyone said, right, we're not doing that again, yeah. that was pretty horrific. Well, arguably, had we 
had we sorted problems out a bit more ad- in a more adult way after the First World War, the Second World War, it wouldn't have happened. You can kind of group them all together yeah, as a war in a way. That's right. Really so I know some people uh, call them phases one and two of the first global conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it also makes me think of something else of what we choose to remember as, as a society as well. So, for example, I know in the US, um, the War of 1812 looms quite large for them. Um, because that was when they finally saw off these, you know, these horrible imperialists. Whereas in did we burn down the White House? Yeah, we did. I Lowell's. think the Canadians did with us as well. Yeah. Um, whereas in in the UK, I mean, eighteen twelve really doesn't figure that large, and it's not because it was a defeat for us. Because there are many sort of defeats in British history which we actually sort of quite um, hold on to and quite emotionally attached to. Dunkirk got a film coming out about it. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's because we had other stuff going on. Um, and we were sort of busy on the peninsula at the time fighting Napoleon. Um, and and so in our national narrative, it doesn't doesn't loom particularly large, um, whereas in the US, it definitely um, is an important part of their narrative. So I don't know, maybe there's something in there, you know, of I don't know what my point is. other than Well, I think that's a really good way. I mean, it's yeah, the, the sort of national story you tell. Uh, is a way of is a way of potentially of passing down knowledge, isn't it? And I mean, it's not too dissimilar for to the yeah the old days of of oral you know of kind of oral history and people learning you know epic poems and transmitting them from person to person mm. uh, as a way of you know preserving knowledge. And I guess that's that's the same. Yeah, we we what what if if you asked people you know the average person tell me everything you know about the history of britain you're going to get 1066 uh you know you and then you'll get you'll probably get uh you know henry the 8th and the tudors and the armada um and you know up to the first and second world war um and those are the things that we obviously consider to be important um which might you know i don't know with what that does really stop makes us ever vigilant against another french invasion yeah, I mean, that's, uh, reinforces something... a sort of narrative of a strong island nation. Yeah, um, I mean, something that always strikes me about the UK is that we're actually we're all we are in many ways quite a backward-looking nation and, and very much looking back on our military history. And that's something that struck me when I lived in Brazil, for example. Is of course they've got a sense of their own history, but they they don't they are sort of more literally forward-looking um, than we are in the UK, and and they they just don't have these same kind of. Um, emotional attachments to that side of thing we are quite a militaristic nation here i think um anyway i don't i don't think that's necessarily the right way to go down look, look i want to wind, wind up we need to finish there i don't think we've satisfactorily kind of got to the bottom of this or sort of thrashed it out quite as much as i'd have liked to have going back to what we were thinking about how does stuff collectively get forgotten i think we've kind of meandered around it a bit mm. um i don't think we've come to any sort of satisfactory conclusion there maybe it's just not possible um so before we wrap up I don't know if you've got 30 seconds um, for anything, any sort of final bit thing you want to say, Peter. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a few interesting projects, uh, many of them not-for-profit, um, seeking to capture import, what is considered now important parts of, sort of internet culture for posterity. So there's a, a very interesting one called the, the Long Now Foundation, which is attempting to archive um, significant contributions on the internet to in a library that will last 10,000 years to provide to provide future historians a repository of of life now um so i think it's it's really fascinating and they 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 they're exploring complex technical issues about how do you ensure that whatever data you store 
now is um, still usable, still accessible in some way in the future, given yeah. that given that most of the sort of in, the inverted commas long term storage media that we use actually perish very quickly you know, within fifty to hundred years. So uh, optical media, mm. magnetic tapes, we just don't last long. And that's before you, the you know people in the future figure out how. You know, when they trigger it with their hand, how do they get their six digits into that? Weird well, exactly, or, yeah. or just making sure that they've got the right version of Microsoft of, of Adobe Reader to read the PDF <laughs> version. Really. Yeah, I mean, because like, I think actually we can be probably a bit blasé about uh, you know the ability of of data to survive because I think we think well we've got so much of it you know that's all going to be there in 100 years right but it isn't unless someone does that unless someone actually puts it puts it somewhere it, you know when a website goes down it's gone forever um and and actually i i think we might look back on you know unless we solve this issue we might well look back at the early digital sort of uh, revolution and 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 it, it might, it be, a might new, be a something like a dark, a, a dark a kind ages, of dark age yeah. i mean because you take uh you know a lot of emails which have totally disappeared you know that actually a lot of you know which is hugely significant um you know uh, the kinds of things which would have been reflected as letters or memoranda a hundred years ago and have now just totally disappeared and and we and won't exist for historians unless yeah. someone is actually actively saving them a friend of mine is you know he's spent the last couple of years um just every couple of days he sets himself a task of printing off 10 of his old emails you know from his personal account and I think my first personal email account is utterly defunct now, and and it's, as you say, I, I there's no way of accessing that data. I presume, you know, um, so yeah, at least someone's doing it there on a personal level. Um, okay, uh, we're gonna have to stop there. He might be the he might be the next Samuel Pepys in a thousand he years time. Be. He might be. Yeah, he is seemingly quite uninteresting. So uh, yeah, <laughs> well, let's let's hope we don't. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. actually, he's a very interesting <laughs> chap. Um, okay, all right, let's stop there. So I've been here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. Um, I'm Fraser McGrew. This has been the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time, bye bye. Mm-hmm.